world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up! It's time to be the heroes we were always meant to be. We can have we can have a band. <laughs> no, a really mediocre out of yeah. band. <laughs> yeah. I can play the ukulele. We'll play, we'll play in the garage. Alright, George Harrison, calm down. <laughs> no, he can play guitar. You didn't listen. I can't play guitar. <laughs> I can't play the ukulele, so we're even. <laughs> okay, huh. George Harrison. Okay. Hey, George Harrison is good. Mm-hmm. It's slander to compare him to me, but the other way around. Uh, should we get started? This is the Superhuman Registration Podcast. I'm not even going to bother with a segue. We've been going for too long. Uh, my name is Stephen. We've got John Aldo on the line. How you fellas doing? I'm wondering what happened to the fourth uh, beetle in our group here. Paul is dead. Chuck Sprightly had him done in. Left him in Hamburg. John, Paul is dead. I thought oh, this right, was right, right, right. We just haven't replaced them, I guess. There's compelling evidence. With a scroll. Do you do you think that, Aldo? You know no, a lot not of, at all. You, the two of you know a lot more about the Beatles than I do. Is that a thing, or is that just like a silly joke? No, no, that's a, like a real conspiracy theory. No, I know it's a real conspiracy theory, but do you think it holds water? No. Okay. <laughs> it's like that, sorry, that's that line from Avatar where it's like, sounds like a... Is that real? It sounds like a legend. Oh, it's a real legend, all right. <laughs> I have a... Okay, so part of the reason I say there's compelling evidence is because we had a friend who got really into the Paul is Dead uh, sinkhole or whatever you want to call it. And he kept trying to convince us it was real and he kept starting out with, like, there's compelling evidence and then, you know, would explain it. And so every time I talk about conspiracy theories, I always start with, there's compelling evidence... <laughs> <laughs> to just kind of accentuate that it's do your research. There's not, there's not compelling evidence. If it's good, if it's compelling evidence, you don't need to tell people it's compelling evidence. The evidence will compel on its own. Here's here's the thing. The correct no, term. No, that's not the thing's not in any of the books we read today. Not yet. <laughs> the correct term is rabbit hole, not sinkhole. And yet, I like sinkhole Ugh. better. Ugh. Especially when it comes to conspiracy theory nonsense. Uh, speaking of conspiracy theory nonsense, uh, should we read, or should we talk about the Star Wars first? Or should we talk ba, 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 about, because that's the one that's like, I don't know. It, it's, I don't know. I, I kind of wonder how closely this follows the original screenplay or whatever. Where do we want to start? Do we want to start with the Star Wars or do we want to start with the the future imperfect? I actually think that maybe we should start out with Star Wars. I have a fair bit to say about both, but we can let's let's go let's do it. Let's start with the Star Wars, which I'm gonna try to summarize as succinctly as I can. So the Star Wars is a nine-issue, eight-issue series that was uh, adapted from the original screenplay or the first draft of the screenplay that would eventually become the movie Star Wars: A New Hope. So technically, George Lucas is a writer. Uh, Marvel Unlimited doesn't have him credited as a writer. Writing credit goes to Jonathan Rinsler. Penciler and inker is Mike Mayhew. Colorist is Rain Barreto. And letters by Michael Heisler. Bizarro story. It's like there are echoes 
of the story that we would eventually know as Star Wars. There is an empire, there's a rebellion, there's a giant space station, there's a Darth Vader who bears almost no resemblance to the, the iconic Grim Reaper of the cosmos. But yeah, mo the components are all kind of in different order. So our protagonist in this story is a young man whose name is Anakin Starkiller. His father, Kane Starkiller, is a member of the secretive order of, like, religious warriors called the Jedi Bendu, whose archenemies are the evil knights of the Sith. Anakin's little brother gets killed by a Sith warrior, and so Anakin and Kane head to the planet Aquilae, where the military is led by General Luke Skywalker, another Jedi Bindu and an old wizened warrior. They learn of this attack. The, the, the Empire is planning on attacking the planet of Aquilae. Uh, and so Luke, Anakin, Kane recruit a couple of people to escape from the planet with them, including the Princess Leia and uh, another soldier by the name of Cleek Whitson, who plays a prominent role in the story that is currently escaping me, so we'll... Pretend I didn't actually mention him. <laughs> Aquilae is, con is conquered by the Empire, but there's now this little resistance that has escaped with the true heir to the Aquilean throne, uh, Princess Leia. In order to kind of further their fight and get further away from the Empire, they recruit Han Solo, who in this version of the character is a swamp thing. <laughs> Han Solo tries to help them escape, but they get... Intercepted by a man named Valorum, who uh, turns out to be a Sith Knight, tries to hold them back, isn't quite able to, they manage to break away, and they escape to this planet that is completely populated by Wookiees, who are very much like the Wookiees that we know from the movies, except they are more like Ewoks, which, you know, the, the whole thing about you take the Wookiee, you cut them in half, and that's how you get the Ewok, by flipping the name around backwards, yeah, that's kind of all here. Uh, while they're kind of hiding on this planet, away from the Empire, Leia winds up getting kidnapped by the Emperor. Anakin goes off to save her, winds up teaming up with Valorum, who is a Sith Knight, but the Empire kind of wants to wipe out the entire ideology, both the Sith and the Jedi Bendu, so, like, he betrays the Empire, helps Anakin rescue Leia, uh, the Wookiees all learn how to fly spaceships, they blow up the, the space station, and the entire story ends with Princess Leia giving Chewbacca a medal. So it's basically just like The Rise of Skywalker. But, like, enjoyable. It, it, I mean, it was pretty enjoyable. It was weird seeing, like, all of these weird little, like, echoes of the original trilogy. Like, Empire Strikes Back, there's almost nothing here from Empire Strikes Back. But there are a lot of echoes of A New Hope, a lot of echoes of Return of the Jedi... A lot of echoes of uh, the the prequels. A lot of echoes of the prequels as well. Yeah, and it was like it was like watching an adaptation of a movie that you know really well, made in a different country, and you're like half awake on the couch with the flu, and you're like, "Is this the part? Oh yeah, this is the part." Of <sighs> no, I'm just imagining being sick and watching Gajini, which is the Bollywood adaptation of Memento, and. Yeah, no, I see yeah, that. Yeah, that'd do it. That's, yeah. that's a good yeah. comparison. I feel like this is more akin to, like, if you went to an alternate timeline and you're trying to figure out what things people know uh, or, or are still the same. You're like, you've seen Star Wars, right? People would be like, ah, yes, the Star Wars, I've seen it. Yeah, with 
with uh, Luke Skywalker. Ah, yes, the warrior, you know, Luke Skywalker. Yes, and the Princess Leia. Yes, she's so scrappy. Yes, and the beautiful, daring rogue Han Solo. Mmm, what? <laughs> I mean, if you're into that, sure, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he's, dashing. He's got gills. I don't know. You like gills? You do? Well, <laughs> all right. I, th- I think what's interesting is, at least for me reading this, I had to get in a very specific mindset. One where I was doing, like, triple duty. One, I had to, like, separate this from the Star Wars I know. Mm-hmm. And, and then I also had to separate the art from the story a little bit. Because the script, I think if I if I were to read the script, and, and you know, essentially we did, right? I think for me is the script really does feel like a very early version of Star Wars. Like this really does feel like this is what was pitched. And somebody was like, are you crazy? We don't have the technology or the budget to do that. George Lucas, this is only your second movie. Are you bananas? Yeah. But a lot of the art. You know, and and I don't know if you guys did read the issue zero, which is just a bunch of concept art. Yeah, actually did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They talk. They talk a lot about how they kind of willingly brought in influences, especially from like the old. Um, I forgot the artist's name, and I hate that. Um, yeah, I know. I know who you're talking about, but I can't remember. <laughs> It'll come to me. Yeah, but like a lot of his original concept art, but also kind of a lot of the stuff that you know ended up being put on the screen. And so they kind of willingly like kind of gave into that. So it really does, at least visually, it really does have a lot of the same language as the movies that we've seen. But I think it really does feel like an alternate timeline type thing of the story itself. There's a lot of stuff here that like definitely made it through all the way through however many versions he had to write up. But, uh, you know, there really are things that kind of kept there. There's there's a lot of stuff in there that also feels like he kept in his back pocket for eventually what would be the... The prequels, like all of the trade negotiation nonsense. Yeah. At the be- at the beginning, it was like waiting through molasses because I was like, "Who is on what side and what what does it matter?" And I felt like I like I'm gonna say it, like I liked this. It was fine. Like I did not hate this. Mm-hmm. Um, but like at the be- it took me a while because at the beginning it was like why why what because you're expecting this you know you're expecting it to be closer, but then I you know as I was reading through the issues. Uh, at some point, I read closer on the title a uh, adaptation of the Rough Draft, and it's like, right, this is the very earliest version, and you can see pieces of, you know, the big story in there, but it's not Star Wars yet. It's the Star Wars, mm-hmm. you know. It's the seed of an idea. It's part Buck Rogers. I felt like it resembled Dune, where it's talking about. You know, the, the king and the emperor and the, the great houses, you know, and the nobility and stuff throughout the stars and all that kind of... It, it had kind of a feeling of that, which was uh, written about 10 years before, less, when I think this... Yep. I think it was 65, so this is early 70s. I think there's also a lot of a lot of inspiration, which, you know, they George Lucas has never been shy about where he's gotten his inspiration from. Sure. Right. But in here, there's definitely a lot more Flash Gordon than there is Kurosawa. In here. Yes. yes. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the Kurosawa influences, you know, it, it, assuming that this is, you know, quote unquote, an accurate script of like the first draft of whatever, right? Because there's still like that little bit of like how much do they have to change for it, you know, to adapt it, right? Right. But, you know, assuming this is as close as we're ever going to get to like actually reading that, I feel like it's pretty obvious that like the Kurosawa influences probably didn't come in until like much later when they were getting closer to filming. Mm-hmm. And that's probably we started seeing a lot more of that. Uh, Ralph McQuarrie. 
Yeah, thank I was you. Say that. Ralph, Ralph McQuarrie was the artist you were trying to go at earlier, Aldo. Yes, thank you. I would be really interested, and in maybe like there's a trade collection out there somewhere that has in the back like the raw material that George Lucas wrote that the Dark Horse team, because this was originally printed by Dark Horse Comics, right? But yeah. the yeah, original yeah. material that the Dark Horse team used to to form this that that Rinsler referred to 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 script it. It'd be interesting to see that, and I would love to see the sacred texts. What like was actually in there and what was added to make it feel older. Like, for example, may the force of others be with you. That's the catchphrase. They don't say may the force be with you. They say may the force of others be with you. That feels too cute. That feels too much like, oh, this is what you expect them to say, but uh, 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 in the earlier draft, it was this other thing. And so I question how authentic it is. If it is authentic, and let's assume good intent here, and let's assume that they're actually being very authentic with the material. If that is authentic, then as a... Uh, someone who considers himself to be an aspiring writer, not that you'll ever actually read anything I ever write, I just like to claim it. It's interesting to look at this as sort of demonstrative of the process of creation and iteration. I agree with John in that this story feels more like Dune than it feels like Star Wars, and I don't think that's a positive. This story is too sprawling, it's too complicated, there's too many moral grays compared to what they are able to deliver. And so you see, like, I, I think the urban legend is that somebody took this screenplay from Lucas, chopped it into thirds, and gave him the first third and said, that's your story. And you can kind of see that because everything is yeah. so much more tailored down. It no yeah. longer is it, you know, trade negotiations and an empire that captures this one place, but the people escape and there's all... It's now, it's, you know... Empire is evil. They blow up a planet. They have to be stopped. <laughs> it's all very simplified. And some of that simplification, like, it's emblematic in the catchphrase. May the force of others be with you becomes may the force be with you. The Jedi Bendu become the Jedi. You have this enormous cast of characters that's whittled down to Luke, Han, Leia, and Obi-Wan, who's kind of the, the Starkiller character. You have two robots, mm -hmm. you cut out half the dialogue and give them beeps. Yeah. The dialogue, like, I was surprised. I'm like, I wonder, I had to really, like Aldo said, separate the art from the writing and everything because there's no way around it being inspired by Star Wars, you know, and you see some of that, it's like, well, they did it exactly like, you know, it looks later on, you know. They... Mm -hmm. You can see they, they went as much as they could. They really tried to, you know, go off those original Ralph McQuarrie drawings. Because I think that's what he had commissioned him to do, some of that, so that he had some visuals to, with his pitch. Like, okay, we're going to have these two robots. We're going to have these type of, you know, spaceships. We're going to have these laser swords, that kind of thing. So we get that. But then you still see stuff that's like, well, this shot is very, like, they've chosen this moment mm -hmm. that we see in the movie and the, the you know shot in the comic books is just like it um it's it's interesting to see you know the the seeds of, of what, what becomes iconic later mm -hmm. i think one of those really interesting tidbits too right is i think the first time that we really see darth vader or that at least you know they he kind of gets screen time for lack of a better word and the first time we're introduced to him, it's the back of the Vader helmet. Like, the yeah. classic, iconic one that we know today. And I don't know... Actually, I kind of have a pretty good idea that that isn't the original design for Vader. 
Vader's original designs were a lot different than what we got in the end. And that is pretty much like a pretty big leap. I don't know how to explain it better, but to say that this is, you know, inspired by the very original stuff and then having a lot of more quote-unquote modern influences. And we get that Vader who looks very much like the modern is written, obviously pre-final product Vader. And I thought that was like very like, oh, okay, they're not even going to try. Like it just kind of looks very Vader-y. And then, you know, he doesn't wear the helmet for the rest of the, the six issues after he appears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vader is more like Tarkin in this, I would say. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And I think that, again, good change the way that it wound up in the final. Interesting the way that he's presented here. I don't dislike it. I thought it was a very interesting take. One of the things to me that's very interesting about what I liked about this book is the lack of the Emperor. Yeah, he's in like one scene, right? Yeah. I actually think Star Wars as a series might actually be better with less Emperor. And now that I have that thought in my head, I'm just like, I think, I think that's what I feel. (laughs) I agree. The Emperor worked best as like, the sinister figure in the background and mm-hmm. the only good sequence with the emperor in it is the end of return of the jedi mm-hmm. that's really the only time i'm thinking about just the original trilogy that's the only time we get him and he's just you know pure evil and it's built up to that well because he's been in the background and then you know luke is confronted head on with this and it's the worry is that he's going to be turned to the dark side because mm-hmm. He didn't complete his training. He's not strong right. enough to defeat Vader. He's not strong enough to, you know, confront his father and destroy his own father. Um, yeah. This, yeah, that, that's where kind of it feels like Dune. There's an emperor in Dune in the mm-hmm. book. And later oh, yeah. I think that, like, I think at the very end he actually shows up, you know. But the whole book, it's just this this vague figurehead out there in space somewhere running the whole show and making mm-hmm. decisions that, you know, bring down fire on planets or whatever the case may be. But that's kind of the vibe I got from this. I wonder, I need to watch Hidden Fortress because a lot of that, as I understand it, made it into Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And I need to read Joseph Campbell because a lot of that made it into Star Wars. I don't know how much of either of those sources are here because I don't get Hero's Journey as much in this adaptation. Right. I get, you know, lots of stuff going on. I get, you know... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it's hard to like see these characters. Like I, I think I get Luke Sky, Luke Sky, Skywalker in this. You know, he's the old general. He's kind of the one that people rely on. I think that whether George Lucas had a concept of the Jedi or not, in here we don't really get much beyond like they're super tough and everyone's afraid of them and they they can fight, but it's not. There's not as many like supernatural powers attributed to them and. Their, you know, lightsabers are, they all have red lights. I mean, that's a, like a visual thing, but. Yeah, that was a little interesting, too, that they all had like the red, the red sabers, except for like the normal warriors who had like white. Yeah, stormtroopers had white ones that were always out, and then the red ones came out. But I think that, like, I don't know how much of that was in the script. Like, you know, because we, we get visual choices here. Mm-hmm. You know, did it say somewhere, stormtroopers are just, you know, mindless soldiers and they carry white batons pretty much while uh sith and jedi are super cool and have red lightsabers and they they can extend out and they like you know only pop them out in like these duels or whatever i don't know i don't know 
Um, it was weird seeing characters kind of split up and, you know, uh, little twin kids put in stasis pots to, like, keep them safe. <laughs> Just like, here, you take a little nap, buddy. We're going to sneak you over the border, you know. I thought that was funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, surprisingly relatable. I'm not going to get into more detail. Yeah, that was, out of, that was out of my mouth and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Something something occurred to me while while John was talking. <sighs> I do my thinking when John rambles. I'm not listening to him put his foot in his mouth or anything. I just am uh, formulating uh, well reasoned arguments and uh, literary discussion and dissecting <laughs> the uh, melange of ideas that occur. Anyway, Stephen, what, what did you want to say? <laughs> Son of a movies with Mikey does a great video on Dune, and that's all I can think of whenever I hear anybody say melange. It's just melange. Oh, here I was expecting something. No, they're real thing. Something worth interrupting John for. Real thing. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt John. Anyways, uh, the dumb thing I was thinking about was, uh, man, thank goodness he was inspired by the Hidden Fortress and not Rashomon, or else Star Wars would have been a hot, hot mess. <laughs> Does anybody have any character arcs in this? Um, I wanted to say that Anakin and Leia's was dumb. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> I think Anakin is probably the only one who really gets a story arc, but yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, we're, we're in the same car. We're in the same car. I hate you. I hate you. And, and not even so much of that where it's like, of course she's going to say she loves him because she's hated him the whole time. But, but you don't get that. It's just out of the blue. She's like, I love you. And he's like, "Uh uh-huh. And then two seconds later, I love her. What? It was so like, I, yeah, I think there was a lot. That uh, didn't make it into the, this adaptation. She says, I love you. And then three panels later, she says, I hate you. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Leia is underwritten in this book. So in our group chat that we have, I sent these fine folks a screenshot of Anakin Skywalker, or Anakin Starkiller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> make it a face. Make it a huh? face. Uh-huh. It's from that. It's from that panel. Did it's I from when she's like, mine? I love you. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Hold on. I got to go back and see. But yeah, he's just making that that face, and it's from that panel, and it's my favorite. It was my favorite thing. It it took me out of the moment, but not in a way that was bad. <laughs> Mostly because I was like, I agree with you. <laughs> I know, I know you said that Leia was a little underwritten here. I actually kind of liked this version of her as well. Not that I think it's as good as what the final the final version that we get, but I think this isn't. As bad as it could be when you think damsel in distress. Because she's not really in distress that much. And she does some really cool stuff where, like, the moment that they tell her that she's going to have to, you know, be taking orders from these dudes as, like, they go do things. And they're pretty quick to dismiss her. They're pretty quick to be like, yeah, she's not going to want to go along with the plan. And she's like, I will do what needs to be done. It's like, heck yeah, girl. Granted, this isn't nearly as headstrong and as brash as, like, the version that we would get. Which I think is ultimately a better Leia, but this definitely isn't like the worst princess, space princess that we've seen. I agree with that. Who's the worst space princess? What? Who's the worst space princess? Lumpy space princess. Lumpy space princess is the worst space princess. Okay, just want to make sure. <laughs> Get it on the board. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I think part of the reason the character is so appealing is actually the artwork. This is not my my like preferred style of comic book art. It it, it airs towards uh, more verisimilitude than I like. The characters look like they are modeled after particular actors. I don't know that I could name the actors necessarily, but like 
Mayhew does a really good job of letting these characters act and emote. I think issue four has one of my favorite sequences. I just want to draw attention to this real quick because I think it's cool. Uh, towards the end of the issue, page, what is it? Page 24. It is the last page of the issue. Leia and Anakin are going to talk and kind of try to clear the air between them because they've had their, you know, silly exchange. But, you know, Leia wants to bring it up. Anakin's like, it's not the right time. And she's like, kind of, regretting that she didn't talk about it earlier and he's kind of regretting that he didn't respond better earlier and like all of this stuff is coming through in their faces and in their posture there's a lot of good storytelling through the character acting and honestly it's again for for this not being my preferred style of comic book art it's pretty good i i yeah. agree i don't like the like verisimilitude like you say where you know they're more concerned about getting it looking just like Harrison Ford than they are about making the comic work. This, I think, you could probably like look really close and be like, okay, it looks like this actor, this actor. But I think it's like they've combined a couple of people mm -hmm. so that you know we get believable faces but not so close that they're going for the photorealism or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think it works here. I think the art is great in this. And it's not like yeah, I don't. It's not my style either, but I I really enjoyed it. And you know, a part of that I will admit, part of that might be that like I enjoy the style of Star Wars, you know. And there's a lot of that that they kept and that you know, even going off the original inspiration, some stuff didn't change very much from the uh, concept art to screen. You know, I think you can tell it's successful. A couple of things that I actually really like and talk about the art in here is I like that they kind of kept. It's kind of like this weird balancing act where some of the costumes really have like that original Star Wars movie feel where it they feels like, you know, scrapped together, right? Like he's just he's just wearing like a trench coat. He's just wearing like a sports jacket. Leia's just wearing like a vest, right? Like it doesn't feel like so detached from like what we got, but then we also get some of the other outfits and uniforms that feel a little bit more, you know, prequelish, a little bit more like, I don't know, advanced with more budget. But kind of talking about the faces, I just wanted to get that thought out real fast. But um, talking about the faces, one of the things that I like about it is probably the th same thing I don't like, <laughs> which is that they look like people, but they don't look like anybody specific. And so that kind of keeps distracting me because they'll make some faces. I'm like, that's somebody. That's got to be somebody from the time period, maybe like around the 70s or, or 80s. It's definitely not anybody modern, but maybe it is because... This dude wearing the leather jacket certainly has, you know, the NSYNC white frosted tips haircut. So, like, maybe he's Lance Bass? I don't know. Ah, uh, they finally got him into the movies. Do you remember that? Like, NSYNC, NSYNC were going to play, like, extras in one of the prequels. And the fanboy community lost their minds. And they were like, no. Oh, my gosh. And there's, like, some shots where Leia actually kind of looks like Angelina Jolie from the Tomb Raider movie. See, I was getting Natalie Portman, but I think that was because I was, you know, in Star Wars mode. And, yeah, mm -hmm. Probably, yeah. I mean, either or. It's just, I don't know. That's kind of my problem is I like this art style. I really do. And I like it when it's done well to, you know, mimic actual actors or people. And I like it as well when it's not, when it's so far away from that, right? Where it's just kind of to give that air feel because I think the Jessica Jones book that we read, The Purple Daughter and the other one, Mm -hmm. They also did a really good job at kind of evoking that realism without actually looking like somebody. 
But this is in a weird gray area for me where it feels like they are somebody. I just don't know who. It's one of those AI-generated images that looks like a person, but something slightly off and you can't quite place it. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think the art is really good. I do think, it, though, the artist has a tendency to, I don't know, capture people in poses that they wouldn't want to have a picture of them. Like, John, you posted this this panel of Anakin eating, like, a turkey leg. <laughs> I loved that. I loved that. And maybe it's because um, my father-in-law is a photographer, and the, uh, there's a, it's a big family. The only time he can be guaranteed to get photos of everyone is when they're sitting down eating. So he probably has albums and albums worth of photos of the entire family mid-bite because that's the only time that people aren't running around chasing kids, you know, walking out of his shot and everything. So he's, yeah, this, this picture of Anakin just like big old chunk of space chicken or turkey, whatever, taken out of the drumstick there was just really funny to me. Yeah, it's good. But I, I was surprised, surprised that I liked this as much as I did. I, I will say that one of my favorite moments in this that we don't get, I think, anywhere in the trilogy of trilogies is Anakin's dad sacrificing himself to help power the pods for the twins. Maybe the and best part of this book. Out. Yeah, it's a really good character moment, especially when he's talking about, like, I have the battery. Like, it's the only battery that's around that's compatible. And he forces them to take it. He rips it out of himself, hands it to them, and then tells his son that, like, he loves them. And it's like, boy, that was a really good moment. And it's kind of moments like that where you remember that even with assistance, or I mean, even without assistance, George Lucas is still a capable person of being able to create really good character moments. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about this before, and I think any podcast that you listen to will typically agree that he's an excellent world builder, great imagination, you know, big picture guy, not the strongest writer. But I think if this is coming straight from a script, I think that's also point of, part of like why Star Wars ended up being as good as it was, because he can help generate those really good character moments. Yeah, and this story doesn't have enough of them. Mm-hmm. But again, that's part of the what makes this story so fascinating is like looking at it as not the final product, but as the thing that gets iterated upon. I, I know I kind of said this already, but as a study in the creative process, this is just fascinating and very valuable, I think, in looking at, okay, this is the big picture and there's a lot of good stuff here. But if it had been made, if the movie had been made like this story... I can almost guarantee that it would have wound up on an on MST3K. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Or or it would have faded kind of alongside Flash Gordon. Right. Uh, alongside all sorts of other science fiction movies that came out at the same time and just weren't quite good enough. Or imitations like Last Starfighter. Yeah. You know, Last Starfighter feels like they just wanted to do the um, Death Star run as a movie. Like, I haven't, I haven't watched it since I was a kid, but, like, it's very, like, so close that, like, as a kid, I would get them mixed up a little bit, you know, or I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's not in this, oh, that's that other scene, oh, that's that, oh, and then now it's like, bah, it's in, these imitators, these, you know. I also like the idea that at some point during these iterations... Either with, like, George Lucas and somebody else or, you know, whoever was helping write the script. At some point, somebody had to say, you know that big space station? Let's just have it blow up planets. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I love that escalation had to happen somewhere. Because clearly, based on this, you know, script, uh, that's not where it began. (laughs) 
And it's such like an iconic thing now, especially for Star Wars, you know, like the big Death Star stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I also like the part where Anakin Skywalker, or sorry, or Anakin Starkiller uh, gets shot out of his little blaster bubble on the ship. And then he's just hanging out in space for a little bit while R2 saves him. My gosh, R2 with understandable speech sucks so bad. Yeah. Oh yeah, he less so loses bad. a lot of charm, surprisingly. It, yeah, I always picture him as just like cursing profanely. Like <laughs> just, he's a he filthy, filthy R2. That's all I always pictured him. And then, and then, you know, we get that in uh, Return or, um, the last Jedi when he's like, Hey, sacred planet, you know, and he was cursing. So I felt very vindicated that yes, I was right the whole time that R2 was cursing. But I, th- I think there's a difference between wanting and imagining him cursing and actually having two hours of R2 actually cursing. Oh yeah. No, it would be hard. I feel like, I feel like it would lose a lot of charm. <laughs> Cause he's cute. He's cute. <laughs> and oh, that's so much better. So I wonder, cause I know his wife like helped him edit the movie itself she like what I'm just assuming, you know, that he would have mentioned. Oh, I have this idea for you know this script, and it's really too big. I gotta pare it down a little bit. And like, was she one of the influences who said like, hey, these three these three people are one character, and make them make them one character. <laughs> you know, like this is a good name. Do you not have enough scrappy sidekicks already? Yeah. <laughs> Do they all have to talk? <laughs> so I like that. Um, you know, because things pop up like the Force Unleashed games. You play as a uh, dark Jedi um, apprentice and can choose to like go to the light side at some point. You know, but that character's name is Star Killer, so like it, it kept in the mix long enough to be used again. And like we get a lot of characters' names that are you know mm-hmm. end up being used later, and planets that Whoa. end up being used later. Like the Wookiees live on Alder- Alderaan, you know, in this one, and not Kashyyyk or or uh, Yavin, sorry, and not Kashyyyk, but. You know, it's interesting, the little things. That's another thing for, like, the creative process, right? No idea is thrown away forever. You can keep it in the back of your mind and bring it back later. I think the other one that, at least to me, stood out was Utapau. Because uh, I think they, I think that's who the planet they're on at the beginning, and they say they're on Utapau. And Utapau, I think, comes up or is reused again in the prequels. I want to say that's the planet where... The hello there meme comes from when he meets Grievous. <laughs> I think that's Utapau. I'll look it up. <laughs> but yeah, I don't. I don't know Utapau. That's the that's that's the one that stood out to me. And like, also kind of a pretty distinct lack of the force as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think we get like a hint of it at some point with between Vader and what's his name Valorum, where they think one of them steals a lightsaber from somebody else. And all we see in the comics that they they stretch out their hand, the next thing we know, it's in theirs. But it's never, like, really called out that this is the Force. Like, maybe that's just a magic power that they had. Who knows? You're right about Utapau. Yay! I just, I was too distracted by him riding that lizard that, like, makes that loud calling sound. I love that. There's so many, there's so many cool things in the prequels surrounded, but it's like a Twix in the center of a dog turd. It's just, ugh. There's there's little good things and like the memes that have come from it like you could watch the entire movie and like have a meme from every scene it's it's ridiculous just hello there my favorite dumb th- <laughs> my favorite dumb thing about the prequels is when <laughs> they're on Geonosis and they're getting uh, attacked by the weird cat thing yeah and it slashes Natalie Portman and in one scene 
the first initial scene, you see that she just has three scratches like across her, her shirt. And then we, we, we cut to another scene and we come back and she has this perfectly cut uh, like belly shirt now. It's like, ah, I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the man who said there are no bras in space. So, you know. <laughs> it's really hard to talk about this book without actually talking about actual Star Wars. Right. Yeah. yeah. It makes me want to watch uh, Kurosawa and, uh, you know, the documentaries that have been made about Star Wars. Like, and look at some, looks like this issue zero is great yeah. with the concept art, you know. Like, we see little things like the Imperial Star Destroyers in this version are like little fighter jets. The same shape, but little itty bitty. On this page of, you know, I'm wondering, well, see, it's so tough. This must have been a really hard job to do visually because you have to ignore all of the stuff that has come before. Because this came out, what, 2014? So they had to ignore the prequels and the sequels, or the prequels in the original trilogy, excuse me. Um, and it came out just before um, Force Awakens. So, like, I wanna, I'd, I'd like to know, like, if there was, like, they could have, like, a little check mark, like, yeah, this is... Yeah, we wanted to, you know, add in this. Because there's a fighter here on the Imperial Star Destroyer page, page 15, that looks like the Jedi fighter because it has the ring that they fly into to go, you know, uh, to light speed. Mm -hmm. Well, like some of the, I think the ship that they're in initially, when they're when they're getting off planet with the princess, that's a, a lot of kind of later ship designs, especially for some of the, the freighters and junkers that we would later see. And mm -hmm. especially some of the extended canon, like the Clone Wars cartoon and such. But also, we did not see like a single thing that really looked close to like a, a TIE fighter. Right. Or or even like an X-Wing. I think the closest thing we got was we got a B-Wing. Like that's that was a B-Wing. You couldn't tell me that was anything else. Oh. And a, hammer, a Hammerhead Corvette is what they escaped mm -hmm. in. Like same as the ship that gets, you know, the, the very beginning of Star Wars. Um, I think there are some cockpits that kind of look like, you know, the center cockpits in TIE Fighters, but they're always in crashed ships in the background, I think is as close as we get. The Sith that ambushes the Star Killers on their home planet of Utapau, he's flying something that looks quite like a TIE Fighter. More like the Darth Vader variety, because it, it's more elongated, but it's got the same sort of, like, very geometric wings. Okay, I'm looking at it. It doesn't look as much like a TIE Fighter as I remembered it, so... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think I think it's interesting because I mean you can very when it's inspired by the actual Star Wars, you can very much tell that it is. And I think I'm more interested by the stuff that isn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really liked uh, Luke. Yeah, Luke Skywalker's like design, especially when he's like in his general outfit before he leaves the base. Like that felt really cool. It also felt like that actually could have been a pretty I don't know iconic design. It felt very counter to like Luke's outfit from uh, Revenge of the. Uh, Return of the Jedi, Revenge of the Sith, the sixth movie. <laughs> I hate that I never remember the names. <laughs> you know, they're they're all kind of like the same, you know, Revenge of the Nerds. That movie is super problematic. I don't know if you thought <laughs> about that movie. <laughs> oh, not, long, not since the first time I had that realization. <laughs> Anyways, I don't think I have much else to say. I feel like, I feel like, I, I feel like... I'm in a weird crossroads where I either have nothing to say right now or I could probably talk more about this for like another hour. I, I think y'all talked me into liking it more than I did, actually. We'll, we'll see how that goes when we get to the ranking, but no, um, I'm, I'm feeling a lot more positive towards it than I did while reading it because I'll admit trying to read it was uh, 
was was a little tough for me sometimes. I and I do think it's kind of like John and I were saying a little bit. I think you actively have to work at separating this from the Star Wars you know mm-hmm. in order to enjoy it. But at the same time, kind of connecting those threads is also what makes this better. <laughs> it's it's such an interesting experiment. I think that's the best way I could kind of describe this book. Yeah. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Uh, so yeah, I think it's time to move on then to uh, Future Imperfect. So Future Imperfect was a two-issue arc of The Incredible Hulk. It came out in 1992-1993 uh, by Peter David, who's the writer, George Perez, uh, penciler and inker, Tom Smith was the colorist, and Joe Rosen was the letterer. I have a problem uh, summarizing stories that we read on this show and not really summarizing them, but taking you through like a beat-by-beat recreation. So I made this in, I did a haikus, one for each issue. It starts tomorrow. Bad future slang, and the Hulk is incredible. Maestro is the Hulk, meaner, badder, and tougher, but weaker than nukes. That's it. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that was really good. (laughs) I do have a three, like, sentence little... So, 90 years in the future, what's left of civilization lives beneath the maestro, an evil future version of the Hulk. A group with the underground resistance, inspired by Rick Jones, finds a time machine and is able to bring Hulk to the future to fight maestro. While maestro is stronger, Hulk is still able to outsmart him and send him to the point, spoiler alert, um, where he sends him back to the moment that the gamma bomb goes off, to the point where the gamma bomb goes off, because it is foreshadowed earlier that the only thing tough enough to actually take out Maestro would be a direct nuclear blast. So that's what they do. Really interesting thing I read on Wikipedia is apparently... Uh, so again, I, I don't I don't read really another the Hulk, but apparently has a homing thing that always can lead him back to the ba- to the to the place where he became the Hulk. Really. They retcon it later that the maestro didn't actually die. His, Uh like, spirit or mind stayed at that spot. And so every time that Bruce Banner or the Hulk felt inclined to go back to that place, he was stealing a little bit of his essence, little by little, every time he comes back. And that's eventually he comes back later. He reforms himself by stealing the Hulk's life force. I figured that, because we get a future imperfect series later, and I thought the Maestro was a pretty good bad guy. Like, you know, what would happen if the Hulk went totally, totally bad? And it turns out he would turn the world into his harem. And uh, just, you know, everyone on the planet would live to sustain the Hulk and whatever his whims would happen to be. And it's awful. Um, so that's a good villain because he's just so bad. I think it's interesting because I've, the Maestro is used so often outside of like comics like in video games in like other adaptations stuff like that uh that i'm actually surprised that he's really only in a couple books that was i think the most surprising thing but also these were some really good books yeah um i was i was like okay uh, like i know we're reading this uh, we've lost george perez and wanted to you know find something that he had done and uh steven picked this one is that right steven i believe that is correct <laughs> um, I have to look and see because I feel it feels familiar to me, but 
the art's incredible. Like it's so, it's so there's good. so much to it. It's dense, not in like a busy way, not in a confusing way. It's there. There's just you know the first couple of panels we get this you know futurescape of like a big crowd scene where there's a. It's like a Where's Waldo only drawn well, you know. <laughs> it's it's seriously like there's so much to it. I'm trying to go to it in this stupid app. It's giving me. Yeah, no, I took a screenshot of it. That that first double page double page spread is just so good. Because the cover is like, you know, not, not, it doesn't really jump out at me. You know, it's, ah, it's the Hulk. Okay, great, fine, whatever. This page, like, you know, all of the details are, are clear in the background of the, the buildings and stuff like that. But the, also, like, all of these figures, you know, there's so much work that goes in. And it's not like anyone who's further back, you know, the, the details, it's not like it's just kind of like muddled in there. Everyone looks good. You know, maybe they're only, you know, a figure with eyes, you know, and that's all the, the attention they get because they're just so far back that there's they don't need to be more detailed than that. But then we get people up close, you know, and you you see, you know, individual hairs, you see, you know, their costumes and all the little details there, things on their back, you know. Very quickly we see, oh, shoot, this is a, a future dystopia, you know. We can see buildings, but we can see, like, you know, technology on the outside of it, you know wires hanging and monitors everywhere the maestro is watching you mm-hmm. just so detailed but so clean that you mm-hmm. are able to you know easily read what's going on could not could not stand any of the future slang it drove me absolutely insane i was just like skimming over speech bubbles a few pages in because i just couldn't take it i was like this is stupid i won't have it and like kept watching and i was like okay the hulk is going to show up at some point and then, like, really got into it, and then, you know, I'm dim, right? So, uh, oh, the maestro, of course it's an e- evil future version of the Hulk, but, like, that didn't occur to me right away, because I'm dim. <laughs> um, <laughs> they say ignorance is bliss. It's true. You get surprised by things. <laughs> you get to enjoy things. You don't see them coming a mile away. No, I feel like I do, like, I get things, you know, like, on a TV show... You know, I'll be like, all right, they're going to get murdered, you know. And some stuff is obvious for, you know, everybody. But, like, other times it's, you know, oh, how did you see that coming? And nobody saw it coming. And But, like, every time I'm on this show and every time we're talking about comics, and like, and I haven't, you know, maybe it's because I haven't lo- heard anything about the particular story we're reading or maybe it's because I, d- I try not to spoil things for myself. But, like, I, I, I am surprised that the big bad is who they are and it's like, well, of course that's who it is, you idiot. Like, do you know anything about story structure or how, how <laughs> like, you know, narratives come out? Like, of course it's an evil version of the, of the Hulk, you know? Like, But I enjoy it because I'm so dumb. Like, <laughs> I just had a flashback to our uh, to our no powers episode, and it's really obvious that this is the 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 watcher. It's y'all being like, (laughs) 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 pleasantly surprised. I will say that the last time I saw the maestro was actually in that really terrible, terrible, awful garbage game, uh, the Avengers. Was that the Square (laughs) Enix one? Like a couple years ago. Yeah, the latest one. Yeah. And because I think, like, their second or third, like, post-base game, like, story arc was, I think they called it Future Imperfect, that you had to go the future. But it's kind of like a combination of, like, <laughs> of Old Man Logan, but without Logan, but the Maestro's there. You have the blind Hawkeye. It's such a weird amalgamation of those. Uh, but the, the Maestro in there was pretty interesting for all ten minutes he was in the game. 
maybe he's a more compelling Hulk villain than the leader who just has a big head. Mm-hmm. It's like, ooh, he's smart because look at how big his brain is. This is like, this is what the Hulk is fighting against. You know? I really like him as a villain. I think he's just so hateable. Mm-hmm. So hateable. And the best part about him being a villain is he how much he feels that he is in the right. That this is that this world that he's built is the world that he was owed based on how everybody treated him and how everybody else was really the monster because they killed each other and he was the one who was there to like pick up the pieces and now he gets to build a harem and like he's just so evil and I love it and he's so he feels so justified and there's like that moment where he's talking to the Hulk right like after he's broken his neck and he's letting him heal and he's kind of showing him around where they're at the dinner and it seems like he's convincing the Hulk. And there was like a moment in there where I'm like, man, like I he's kind of earned this almost <laughs> until I remember that he's evil. And then I was yeah. like, no, no, he didn't. But like the fact that I had like that brief moment where I was like, I think he might be a little justified. <laughs> <laughs> he is the strongest. Why shouldn't he have all of this? Look at him. But he's always <laughs> been hated and he's always been feared. He lets, like, this is a version of the Hulk that lets that resentment drive him to do just, like, atrocious things. But he can get away with it because Hulk is the strongest one there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels plausible. That's, like, also the really thing about it, too. Which makes him a perfect villain for this iteration of the Hulk. So this is the 90s version of the Hulk, which means I have the trading card. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah. Bruce Banner did an epic round of therapy with Doc Samson, the superpowered psychiatrist, who melded all of the different Hulk personalities. So you have a version of the Hulk that has all of the strength of the Green Hulk, all of the cunning of the Grey Hulk, but the intellect and the moral compass of Bruce Banner. And yeah, put him against a version that still has all of that intelligence and all of that cunning, but doesn't have the moral compass anymore. And it's like, this is the perfect villain for that version of the Hulk, because it is the version of the Hulk that he could grow up and become. And that's kind of terrifying. And it never stops being fun at the same time, because there's this huge fist fight that is just glorious to watch. And yeah, good Hulk comic with a good, solid villain. I will say there is one moment that, like, actually stops being fun. Oh my gosh, it's the same moment. We're going to talk about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's, I'm not going to lie. That, like, left me with my, like, jaw open. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, listen, I don't, a lot, I watch a lot of anime. (laughs) You? When anime brings up the very sensitive subject of sexual assault, it doesn't do it very well. And it's often presented through a through a lens of titillation, yep. which is really uncomfortable. So I'm so every time you know sexual assault comes up in a book, I'm very like worried about how it's gonna play out, right? And the fact that here it plays out kind of perfectly, I think this is the way you want to portray it. It's a terrible thing. It's not great. It's not fun. It's not titillating. And the fact that like I felt uncomfortable watching it as but like that was the intended purpose of it. I loved how good it was because of how much I don't ever want to read that again. Yeah. I had the exact opposite response. I thought that it was very much designed to be titillating and I am like blown away by the art and by the great writing in like 90% of this book. But this is the story where the Hulk gets raped 
And I don't think I'm okay with that. Like, it hurts my enjoyment of this book quite a bit. Because, like, you get these very, like, sexy shots of the, the woman that the maestro brings in to assault the Hulk while he's incapacitated with a broken neck. And the Hulk is, like protesting it the whole time and it's horrifying to read because it's a horrifying thing that's happening and all the while you know there's this very sexy shot of the woman from behind taking her top off and she's leaning in and it's i i do think it's it's i don't think it i don't know i wouldn't say that it's tastefully done I, it made me almost as uncomfortable as the depictions of assault that you see in anime where it's usually done for jokes. The only difference is I expect it from anime. I don't expect it from a Hulk comic. I guess the thing is I didn't feel it was, uh, I, I didn't interpret it as actually being like sexy. Um, I guess I saw that or read that differently because it wasn't like ex- super extreme close-ups of the things it, it felt like this is what we're seeing because that's what's happening but that was just kind of my reading of it i'm afraid to say this because i'm worried that this is going to wind up being the uh, episode title although there is rear facing side boob <laughs> yeah <laughs> that is going to be the title <laughs> I, f- I don't know based on how many comics we've read and co- considering a whole book we read called galacta this really doesn't feel like it's that titillating like, at least not on purpose to, like, the audience. I think this is meant to be titillating in the same the sense that this is how she has to be dressed for him. Uh, but, like, I don't know. It, to me, it, it apart from the costume, it never feels, like, sexy. This doesn't feel like it was necessarily done for, for me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Definitely the most side move we've had in any comic, I think. Is it, though? <laughs> Doubtful. <laughs> No, you know, let's put cards on the table. You tell me which one has had more side boom. There's like, there's, there's harems in this thing. Like, just like backgrounds. I'm pretty sure Ultimate Hulk versus Wolverine. That was like a, a scene. This, this one is like the backgrounds, you know? Well, we also haven't read Shauna the She Devil, so, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, Frank Cho, you know. Oh, well, there you go. Well, yeah. once, once we get the, once we add that to the roster, that'll be the champion for a while. <laughs> but anyways yeah but uh, but anyways yeah uh you know i think we have slightly differing opinions but yeah if, if the point of that scene was to make us uncomfortable and i think at the bare minimum we all we can both agree that it made us uncomfortable yeah yeah definitely did i just it, it kind of goes back i don't remember if this was actually like in the episode or not but a couple weeks back although we talked about pride of baghdad Mm-hmm. And Pride of Baghdad also features a kind of a horrifying scene of sexual assault. Yes. But the, the characters in Pride of Baghdad are lions and lionesses. And it's like, mm-hmm. my comic about lions, and yes, I get it's a political allegory about the invasion in the Middle East. I get all of that. I still don't want to read about lion rape. Kind of the same thing here. Um, I, I get that this is kind of demonstrating that the maestro has completely defeated the Hulk, and he's like kind of playing these mind games with him by putting him in the same room as a woman who looks like his ex-girlfriend and all of this. Like, I get what the writer is trying to do. This is not what I want for my fun future sci-fi Hulk romp. That's fair. I guess this is what I expect out of my evil cyberpunk uh, mad genius. Yeah, yeah. Which, which you know, like I said, like it's. I think we have different expectations for certain types of books, and this is one of those instances where I think our different expectations... Kind of clash on on it yep. a little bit. Yep, it's gonna make the ranking interesting. Um, it will. 
Actually, I don't think it'll be that. I, th- I think we'll still be in a pretty good agreement of most we'll, of this we'll, book. Yeah, we'll have to see. Towards the very end of the second book, the maestro has beaten the crap out of the Hulk, and he walks up to him, and he says, you're fighting the inevitable Hulk. And that just, like, stopped me in my tracks. How has there never been a book called The Inevitable Hulk? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. That surprises me. Genuinely does. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I never want to see the Hulk with Five O'Clock Shadow ever again. No, it was terrible, right? Like, Colossus with a beard, um, the best thing ever drawn in a comic book um <laughs> fight me um but yeah uh hulk with uh, five o'clock shadow no 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 thank you also at one point he's leaping at the uh <laughs> at the maestro and you can't see his like you know his purple briefs so it just looks like he's doing a really complicated moon like he's just leaping at him and he's yeah it's uh no more insanity he's uh thrown the shield at him and they reason that, like, oh, no one's ever thrown the shield hard enough to have it damage the Hulk before. And they're, like, fighting in basically, like, a Marvel gift shop. It's just, like, the leftover relics of all of the Avengers and other, like, Cyclops' visor is in there. Cap's shield and his mask. The helmets of several heroes, whatever. He blocks the uh, shield with um, the uh, Silver Surfer sh- uh, surfboard and uh, knock o- knocks over an urn. Full of Betty, uh, Betty Banner's ashes, which is pretty messed up. But yeah, he uh, leaps at the ma- at Maestro and kicks him. But like from this angle, it's just like Hulk butt. I thought it was kind of funny. Took yeah. me out for a bit because I was like, this is way to attack. But first, I think it's also funny. I, I'm happy you brought up the, the Marvel gift shop because we also get to meet a very old and kind of going senile uh, Rick Jones. Yeah, Rick Jones. Rick Jones. I'm Rick Jones. <laughs> I'm in Professor Xavier's chair. I don't I don't like to agree with the villain, but I did think it was funny that Rick Jones was saved by one souvenir just to die by another. Yeah. And it was Wolverine's skeleton. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, that's funny. And I was like, I hate to agree with you, but it is a little funny. <laughs> but what not that how Rick Jones would want to go anyway? Apparently he would want to go with his ashes glued to Captain America's shield and getting thrown into space. <laughs> oh, yeah. What a way to end this whole thing. Yeah. The first issue of yeah. this book is so good. The second issue of this book has so many weird things. Yeah. I think most of the complaints or nitpicks or whatever we want to call them are mostly in the second book now that I'm thinking about it. I, I think so too. That first issue has, I, I, like the introduction of the Avengers gift shop is probably the best picture, the best image in the whole book. And the weirdest part of the whole book that doesn't like merit a trigger warning is the fight in the Avengers gift shop where the maestro is temporarily incapacitated by inhaling Betty Banner's ashes. Yeah. Oh, and don't forget the part that he's also trying to pick up Thor's hammer because he's still not worthy. Okay, but that's still fun. I'm always here for a good villain thinks he can win the day with Thor's hammer and can't actually pick it up bit. Always here for that. Can I say something that I thought was really good? The colors. Yeah. All throughout, I love the coloring. They they do a very good job of creating, again, going back to that very first page, you know, with the double page spread, the, the colors paint this really good picture of, you know, dystopian climate. Like, that actually comes through 
in the coloring where it's all like the the warm colors all over the place creates this sense of heat without anybody really describing it. The There's a really great page in issue two, page five, I think is what it was, where the Hulk and the Maestro are fighting and the Maestro slams down into the ground and the shockwave knocks the Hulk back. And the Maestro is moving with such force that he's yellow. Uh, just that coloring of him and all the speed lines bringing him down does a really good job of selling the velocity. The the I don't know. I think the coloring is just really, really strong throughout and, and really helps to tell this story. And it creates this great sense of like retro future where it's science fiction from the perspective of decades earlier. Ah, just such a good vibe. Just such a good vibe. I I mean, cal- calm down. It's I-, I was only two years old when this book came out. It's not that <laughs> Steven. Tom Smith, colorist. I don't. I don't remember if we mentioned the the creative team. I thought I did at the beginning, but yes. Tom Smith. I don't. Not a name I know. Did a really good job. That's really what like sold this for me was just how like I didn't know what I expected for the art, um, but to have it be this good. At so many different things, interesting paneling, great poses, great action, um, you know, just clean and neat. And then, now there are some panels, like some pages toward the uh, middle and end of se- uh, issue two that you could, it feels a bit rushed. Like the inks, the particular panel I was talking about earlier where, the, you know, the ashes are in Maestro's face, like it, it's, it feels a little sloppier than other ones. But for the most part, just like really good stuff here, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think actually talking about the paneling and the colors and all that stuff working together really well. Uh, page 26 of the second book in which we have a bunch of the rebels observing the healing Hulk with the maestro as they're essentially kidnapping or just adding another girl to the maestro's harem after they visit that little village or something. Really interesting note here is that what's breaking up the panels is like this visor that they're looking through, like this... Uh, telescope or whatever you want to call it when we're seeing what they're seeing through it it's all blue right and it has Uh a little black frame interesting thing about the geography even though on each quote-unquote panel it shows you know them on their weird you know future cats or whatever and them kind of hiding behind some rocks the rocks on both sides of the page never break up they're one continuous rock Uh but it's like the little telescope visor thing that breaks up the the panels we and like the top of the page is a wider shot and then we zoom in for a close-up with you know them peeking over a ridge and then it's back out a little bit further and like they're moving from you know the wilderness to a base that is like i don't i noticed that subconsciously and like now i'm looking at i'm like oh we're like zooming in more and more and like you know it's really cool it's not just uh mizzensane now the it's Sergei Eisenstein, who, yeah, I'm sorry. I took a Russian film class, so there's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing. Seeing seeing the seeing the character's point of view like that um, is a thing that Eisenstein came up with. Battleship Potemkin, kind of back in the... People who know, know. <laughs> and people who don't do podcasts with John. <laughs> The mise-en-scene is the arrangement of scenery and stage properties in a play. And the mise-en-place is the arrangement of of all of your ingredients before you actually begin the act of cooking. Where we? And the mise-en-place is what you need to figure out to make the quadratic equation work. Don't bring math into our comics podcast. I brought it in real bad because I said the mise-en-place. <laughs> I don't know what a quadratic equation is. 
And the mizzen mast is the mast aft of the ship's main mast. Uh. Anyways. <laughs> really good colors, really good art. Yeah. I also really like that the hulks, the two hulks that we have here, have very distinct but really similar shades of green. Uh, it's it's not mizzen sand, it's the Soviet montage theory, I'm sorry. John, <laughs> montage. Montage. No, it's a. I look. Listen, listen. How many times do you get to use your degree? I never get to use my degree. <laughs> I didn't get one, so I don't. <laughs> well, montage, not mise en scène. I got it wrong. Montage. It's the you see the the character, you see what they're looking at. You see the character, you see what they're looking at. They do it in Jaws. They do it in Sergei Eisenstein's movies. Now we can be done. John knows a thing, he shared a thing, we're all enlightened, we're all better people. Except for the maestro who is dead. Yes, and that, that baby who went down the stairs in Battleship Potemkin. Oh, did the baby die? I, they might have caught it at the last minute, I can't remember. Because they also did that in The Untouchables, and I think they caught the baby at the last minute in The Untouchables. But Yeah, I don't actually think I've seen the Potemkin scene, but I've seen The Untouchables one. Okay, let's say yes. Yes, the baby dies. What a stupid movie. No, I'm saying let's say they they save it. Is Potomkin like a thing and not just a character from Guilty Gear? It's a thing. <laughs> it's like a real thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes. Interesting. I learned. That's what I learned. See? That was the takeaway. <laughs> and aren't you better for it? I no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I am still me. We wouldn't have you any other way. I would hope you would, though. Like, <laughs> Don't settle. <laughs> Are you settling for bargain brand Aldo when you could be having premium Aldo? Now with Aldo Plus, <laughs> you too could have the best Aldo experience that you could purchase. <laughs> uh, should, we, should we rank these? Yes, I, Hold on, I want to say one more thing. Oh yeah, go it's ahead. It's not relevant to this. It's not relevant to the story. I just want to point out that apparently, a couple years ago, uh, Peter David was hit by some sort of lightning bolt of inspiration, and there have now been like three or four Maestro miniseries in the last two years or three years, I guess. They came out with Maestro, Maestro, pa- uh, Warren Pax, and then Maestro World War M, and they're all about how he became the Maestro. Hmm. Also, I like saying maestro, because that's teacher or master in Spanish. Maestro. <laughs> La historia del Hulk increíble y el maestro. I think he would have been a lot more threatening if he had a baton the whole time like he was conducting an orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that's all I wanted to say. I'm done now. All right. Well, let's go ahead and rank this. Uh, currently have 194 stories on our... Holy crap. We're coming up on 200, folks. You know what the worst thing is? Is that we're like, we want to do something special for 200, but you know it's going to be a piece of crap story. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's special in its own way. Special to me. Okay, just to give people an idea of what the list looks like, our highest ranking Hulk story is currently number 8, which is Planet Hulk. Lowest ranking Star Wars story... No, wait, we'll do lowest ranking Hulk story because that's more dramatic. Lowest ranking Hulk story is Ultimate Hulk and Wolverine, which is number 188. So the Hulk can really run the gamut. Star Wars, uh, I don't think we have anything Star Wars related that's super high on the list, though. A lot of the Star Wars stories tend to gravitate towards the middle of the list. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're adaptations like, I don't know, I like Dr. Aphra, and I, I think that there are stories out there that we will like more 
but it's inevitably the problem is always like, boy, I wish I was watching this. I think Afra the the first story arc from Afra is our highest ranking Star Wars story. It's at number fifty. Yeah, I think you're right. The Star Wars I don't think goes that high. Oh really? I okay. That's I was gonna say when in at least in the top fifty. So, but this is the thing. Like, I think you two. Not only did you like it better than I did, I think you have talked me into liking it more. So, I'm just gonna tell you where I thought it would go while we were reading it, which is right under the Star Wars New Hope manga. Because I like the stories for similar reasons, where I think they're really interesting studies of the creative process. I just happen to like reading the manga better because that's more the art style that I like. Plus, it has the benefit of having all of the, you know iterations and finesse that were eventually applied to create the Star Wars movie that we all know and love. So that's where I would put it, but I am, to- especially after our conversation, I'm totally open to going higher. Now, Aldo, we have a unique position here, because you and I are on the same side of this. Uh, <laughs> Stephen has already admitted defeat. He has, he, has, <laughs> he has made the first offer, foolishly put a number down on paper, and has admitted willing to, willingness to compromise, so we can really stick it to him here by uh, shooting this to the top, baby. <laughs> uh, how, how to the top do you feel this goes? <laughs> I don't know. He makes a pretty good point, and maybe we should stick it around Star Wars New Hope manga. But you know, because <laughs> uh, what I was gonna say to me, this is a this is a lot more interesting than Kamala Khan gets a boyfriend. But I don't think it's good enough to surpass the Runaways Volume One. I'm looking at Spot Twenty Nine. Whoa. I thought very highly of this book. Now, I agree with what you said, but I also don't think 20... I don't think it's good as 29, because, you know, it's a mess in the beginning. But there are some, like, there's some great action in it, too. And the art really should be on its own. The art definitely belongs that high. I just I just think that The Runaways is a really good hard ceiling. And while, at least to me, this gets close, I don't think it's strong enough to break past that ceiling. I would say the highest I would go is uh, 37 under Karnak. Because Karnak, I think the story was tighter, and this was kind of a mess. But the art is very, very good, so that's also... And I'm okay with putting it below Beta Ray Bill, because for as much as I like this book, there's no ship in there called the Scuttlebutt. <laughs> and it was so so many star starships in the Star Wars. There was a lot of opportunities to call at least one the Scuttlebutt. Or use it as an insult, you Scuttlebutt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they wasted it, yeah. Mm-hmm. that That's a good argument uh, for putting it below Beta Ray Bill. Yeah, I'm okay with putting it below Karnak, since uh, that's what you had suggested, so I'm okay with that. Yep, two against three, Steven's screwed, democracy works. <laughs> I'm never in this position, this bargaining power position. Uh, you're not really bargaining, though. You're kind of bullying him. <laughs> it feels good, though. <laughs> one, could get, one could get addicted to this power. That is so much higher than I thought it would go. Well, then it's something to fight against... Uh... Later. I mean, there is crap up top that I don't know why it's up there, but here we are. <laughs> it's still a little weird that this is that Kamala Khan gets a boyfriend that's a little higher than this, but I guess that book was also pretty packed. That is my favorite arc of Miss Marvel. <laughs> I think you argued for that pretty strongly, so, I mean, obviously. I think I did too. Okay, Future Imperfect. So... I think it, I think my ceiling for this is the Star Wars manga. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? As a ceiling? 
The Star Wars manga? That's pretty Wars low. Manga? Is it? Where is it? Because I, I feel like it's in the middle. I mean, it's at like 88, 89. But the very, like, so just above Stay Angry, because I think this is much superior to Stay Angry. Stay Angry has, oh, like, yeah. some interesting ideas to it, but... Stay, Stay Angry was kind of just fun. Yeah. I, I think what, what makes this one really good is the maestro as a villain. Mm-hmm. So maybe not a ceiling, but that's my that's my area. I'll put that. That's my area. It's the Star Wars manga. That's my initial area. That's funny because I I was like, oh, the 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 sexual assault sequence is really uncomfortable. I don't I didn't like that, and I actually want to rank this significantly higher than you do. Oh, go ahead, yeah, by all means. It reminds me. I I think this is my ceiling. It reminds me of Wolverine, where it's uh-huh. technically very good. The story is really well done. But there's this thing. There's just this thing about it that makes me not want to put it in the like the highest echelon. In Wolverine, it's some kind of low-key mid-80s orientalism and racism, which mm-hmm. is, I don't want to say it's forgivable, but it is understandable in the context of the time in which it was published and really we should have known better then and we definitely know better now. The, the sexual assaults, to me drops this beneath Wolverine, but it, that's the, the parallel that's coming to mind, where I think this is a technically very well-done story, done in a style that I think is very compelling, with a really engaging plot, a really cool character, but that is just this thing. So that's kind of the area that I'm looking at. I have a hard time putting this above the Spider-Men, which is a rape-free book. I absolutely <laughs> am fine with it going beneath the Spider-Man. John, what are you thinking? I think that you're both right. <laughs> I like my books to be rape-free, uh, so that's good. I think, yeah, it is. A, it is a turd in the punch bowl, isn't it? A little bit. Because it's like you, you, you didn't have to tell us how evil he was in this way, but you did. And he's that really does prove the point of him being a really, really bad, bad guy. Because, you know, I mean, there's still assault going on, like literal piles of women that just are brought to him, you know, Um, in addition to the Hulk having it happen to him. So, you know. And, you know, let's not forget the creepy, you know, maybe implied clone of his ex-girlfriend that he keeps around as a slave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm actually kind of disappointed in myself for not kind of being more, like, repulsed by all the rest of the incidental rape that's going on in this. That's actually a really good point. Yeah, John. it wasn't it wasn't, wasn't real until it was happening to the Hulk. Hmm, yeah. No, I'm, be, I'm being a jerk, but, like, you know. Do better, Steven. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, I think a little, I guess, slight, unpo- I don't want to say unpopular opinion. I also just wasn't as taken with the art as you guys were. Not that it's bad, and not that I have any negative opinions for it. Uh, I thought it was very good. And the paneling at points was really impressive. But I think overall, for me, the art was very good. But not, at least to me, it wasn't like, wow. I just, I've been drawing daily for the last, you know, couple of months at least. And probably longer. Mm-hmm. But like, really making a concerted effort the last couple of months of like, every night, gotta draw something before I go to bed. You know, otherwise I can't, like, that's how I relax. And, uh... Yeah. Boy, it's hard to draw a big a big thing well and, and, like, perspectives and backgrounds and stuff as well as character art. And it's just, you know, seeing it done here so cleanly was really nice. But yeah, um, I also understand where you're coming from. So we're in this middle area. I think good points have been brought up. Where is the 
asterisk section of like good, but like hey, no going in, it's problematic. Is that like does that start? Yeah, okay. That's Black Panther and the Clan, the uh-huh. Red Truth, Red, White, and Black. Wolverine, Wolverine. yeah. Craven's Last Hunt. That's a little, you know. Little Ooh, famous. I think I like Craven's Last Hunt better than this, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Kang Dynasty also. Uh, gotta go below that, because uh, this one. Kang crashing on Earth, standing on top of his sword, the Damocles, challenging yeah. Captain America to a fight. Yeah. What if we put it between the, the first appearance of Doctor Doom and the United States of Captain America. Yeah, I like it more than the United States of Captain America. Asterisk, except for assault, yes. Okay, so that's the new number 67. Mm-hmm. This did not, these, this ranking did not shake out at all the way I thought it was going to. Me neither. <laughs> Both of them much higher than I thought they would be. Wow. To be honest, so. Yeah. I, I don't know, I these kind of ended up right around where I thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get it, although you're the smart one. Sometimes I use the word quadratic today. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. Quadratic, but you know, tomato, 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 um, isosceles, whatever. I think he's triangle. I hated algebra so much, guys. I never want to do it again. <laughs> so I'm actually pretty excited for for our next episode's reading because it's kind of getting back to just straightforward to you know. Four to six issue miniseries. Just, I don't know. <sighs> Marvel Comics the way Stan Lee intended it to be. Saved for the trade paperback. <laughs> I will I will say, that's not the thing that was, I don't know, burning me out. I think the events. I feel like we've done a lot of events, like, we have. pretty close to each other in the last few months. That's kind of the thing that was burning me out. I was like, I'm kind of tired of everything being a big deal. <laughs> and these stories may or may not actually wind up being big deals. I haven't read them. But yeah, excited to. First, we're going to read the 2014 Magneto miniseries, uh, issues one through six. And then we're going to follow that up with another classic miniseries, Daredevil Yellow. That's a lobe sale joint, isn't it? It is. I snuck one in on you. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is going to be the first lobe sale book I actually read. See, I like him. And the, like that, that that combination got me into comics again as a grown-up that's the dumb thing i wanted to bring up from the future imperfect i remembered now oh really yeah it's when the hulk shows up sorry because loeb sale did uh, they did a few of the batman books right right yeah yeah okay so <laughs> when the hulk shows up and rick jones is like hey welcome and he's like yeah this looks like a museum to whatever blah 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 he's like the only thing missing is a giant penny would really seal the whole place together and I was like, that's a Batman reference. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that was a thing until the DC versus Marvel books. And, like, Mole Man and the Hulk are in the Batcave. Somehow, like, everything gets all mixed up, you know? And mm-hmm. this is, like, the, when they realize, like, something bigger is going on, you know? And uh, the Hulk smashes Mole Man on the Mole Man with, a big pe- with the big penny. He's like, penny for your thoughts, and squishes all of them. Yeah, that's, I was like, well, that's such a weird thing. Did that happen? And it turns out, no, the penny is part of the Batcave. But, like, for years I was like, the Hulk and a big penny showed up in the Batcave. Isn't that weird? Turns out there's a T-Rex in there, too. I remember that scene. I read those books. I, I just want the Justice League versus the Avengers to be on the app, but it's never going to be. 
Never going to happen. <laughs> the fact that they got it reprinted at all is kind of a miracle. Wait, it got reprinted when? Oh, no, you're thinking... Oh, sorry, sorry. I was thinking of the Avengers X-Men that Perez drew. That one got reprinted. But you, the Amalgam comics and the, that crossover, no, that, that sadly probably never will. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably for the best. I think because like I don't want to go back and realize how sad I am that I was like liked it as a kid. Like I remember seeing Stan Lee on late night TV talking about it, and I was like, "This is the greatest moment in all of comic books. This will decide like what comics we read going forward." Because whoever loses, like they suck, and we're not going to read them anymore. You know, so dumb. But I mean, it, it was done by Busick uh, and Perez, though. So like, that's a pretty classic. Team. No, that's the JLA Avengers. The uh, Amalgam Comics is a different thing that was done by all the... I don't even know who did it all. See, I, I'm talking about JLA Avengers. That's the one I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah, but yeah. The, the scene where the Hulk tips over the penny and crushes the Mole Man, isn't that from the the DC versus Marvel stuff? It's... Yeah, DC versus Marvel, like the Amalgam Comics. Yeah, yeah. Which I think was actually kind of brilliant, where instead of, like... They did the whole who would win in a fight between Batman and Captain America. But then they decided, what if Batman was also Wolverine is a more fun question. Dark Claw. And then they combined uh, uh, Superman and Captain America as like Super Soldier or something. It was really weird. But yeah, they they um, like all team up. Like the good guys end up like in stop fighting and teaming up to like stop, you know, big cataclysm. But I, uh, I, I there was a panel where Darkseid... And Thanos are fighting. That was kind of cool. And Thor and, and Wonder Woman fight them, and Wonder Woman can pick up Thor's hammer. Yep. There's also another series, I don't know if you guys ever read these, where the what if DC books were like, what if Stan Lee had made the DC universe? Oh, yeah, yeah. it's a mess. <laughs> the Batman one is weird. Yeah, they're not great. <laughs> Hats off to them for doing that, but yeah, it's weird. Definitely different vibes. I was, I'm also really sad because I, I was really excited to make a bunch of Sith jokes. But at the end of the whole thing, I guess I was the one who was full of Sith. Boo! 